It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. In this podcast, we explore some of the little-known legends, stories, places, and rumors about the great Buckeye State. We're your hosts, Mike and Dan. So hide the keys, lock the doors, and turn down the lights. The next episode is about to begin. Hi, welcome to another edition of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the skydiving tragedy that changed all the rules. With us is my partner, Mike. Mike, hello. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm just ducky. So tonight's episode, we're going to talk about a skydiving tragedy that took place in Huron, Ohio. Have you ever been skydiving? I have not been skydiving. I have not even been skiing, snow skiing, or water skiing. Let's talk about the story of the tragedy that changed all the rules. Let's get into it. Okay. On Sunday, August 28th in 1967, a tragedy occurred at Ordner Airport, which resulted in the deaths of 16 people. Ortner Airport is a little airport in Wakeman, Ohio, and Wakeman, Ohio is a little town in north-central Ohio. The airport itself was started by a guy named Andy Ortner, and Andy Ortner was a pretty cool guy. He was a pilot in the war, and he got bit by the aviation bug. He constructed an airstrip on his family farm. Him and his brothers slowly and gradually built this airport up. They opened an air service where they would transport parts across the country, and they were really well-known in northern Ohio. At one point, they had over 30 airplanes. So, over time, they expanded it to skydiving, and during this event, they were going to use a B-25, and a B-25 was a bomber plane from World War II. Now, a series of accidents and problems are going to occur, which result in this tragedy. And we're going to talk about these problems and mistakes kind of as they happen. So the pilot of the World War II bomber was Robert Carnes. He owned the B-25 and he was also the pilot. So word had spread throughout Ohio and aviation circles that there was going to be a high altitude jump at Ordner Airport on this day. Everybody told everybody else, and before you know it, a lot of people were descended on Ordinary Airport expecting to jump. I thought, did I, I heard that they actually turned people away. Is that true? Absolutely, they did, and that was one of the part of it. There was no regulation on the number of people that were going to jump on that day. So all of a sudden, everybody shows up to jump, and it was a high-altitude jump. They're advertised at 20,000 feet and 30,000 feet. 20,000 feet is really high. 30,000 feet is even higher. So this was very unusual at the time, and it's still unusual to this day. So they had advertised it as a free jump, which made it even all the more tantalizing for people to show up at the airport to jump. So when that day rolls around, all of a sudden these little mistakes started contributing to this problem. 
one of the first ones, the first problems was there was really no regulation in terms of how many people were going to be on this airplane. As a matter of fact, uh, there were, they had to turn people away. There were 30, weren't there? 30 people originally scheduled to jump? There were 30 people originally scheduled to jump. However, they determined that not only was there physical physical weight restrictions of the airplane, but space inside the, the airplane itself. They say that it was a B-25 airplane converted over from the war, but that's all they did. So there were no seats in it. There was nothing. All they had was just empty bomb bay doors. And so the people in the plane had to kind of crawl over everything to get to their spots. And what, what did they whittle that down to? Like 18 jumpers then? Is that what it was? Uh, they whittled it down to 18 jumpers. Correct. Okay. And it was important that they contact the FAA because there was cloud cover on that day. They only contacted it an hour before the jump. As a matter of fact, they delayed the start of this flight because of the cloud cover. They thought it would clear up, but it never did. Is that one of the rules that changed? I mean, you have to talk to them now, don't you absolutely have to talk to them now? Absolutely. You have to talk to them now as you had to talk to them back then, strictly because one of the primary reasons is you're over commercial air traffic space. This is in a Cleveland air pattern, so now you're seeing jets up at this altitude as well. So it's important that they contacted the FAA. But subsequent investigation will find out they only contacted them an hour before the jump. Additionally, they never contacted the FAA about a weather. They never got a weather report. So they had a a pre-flight debriefing, and one of the things that they found, they had no oxygen on board. They had the oxygen apparatus, but it wasn't working. So at that altitude, you need oxygen. Otherwise, you're going to get what they call hypoxia, and it's becoming, you just run out of oxygen, and the pilot's going to suffer from that during this flight. And that's going to become part of the story. Another problem that they had, they found the pilot had no way to communicate. It was crazy. The, the way they said it was, he couldn't talk and navigate at the same time. So he had to do one or the other. Additionally, he couldn't talk and receive at the same time. So if he wanted to talk to the FAA, he had to switch it over. So he had to go from talking to receiving, which made communication difficult between him and the FAA. But these are restrictions on the aircraft or the, the way things were done? or not... Correct. It was, it was a restriction of the aircraft. Okay. So he had kind of an antiquated radio. Okay. And now today, if you ever look at today's planes, there's computers, there's computer screens, everything is computerized. Back then, it's a World War II. This is a very Spartan airplane. There's, it's, it's not made for, there's no frills on this thing. And so communication is going to become increasingly difficult. And that's really going to add and contribute to this accident. So as the day progresses, not everybody would sign the flight manifest. And you have a flight manifest to simply tell who's on the plane. But you're going to find out the flight manifest. Some people that were on, some people that were on the plane didn't sign it, and some people that did sign it weren't on the plane. So the day of the flight, everybody gets in the plane. They realize, hey, this plane's too overloaded, and they kicked out the people that had lesser hours. So it was only the experienced skydivers who were left. When they initially contacted the FAA, they had an understanding that the FAA was going to give them the okay to jump. So, and that was for two reasons. Number one is they're in commercial air traffic. The FAA has to be involved. The FAA has to let them know, uh, hey, you might have another plane in the area as well as letting other planes in the area know. So the second reason that they did this and communicated with the FAA is that they were over cloud cover. So that's a huge problem. 
And that was one of the rules that initially that they broke was you got cloud cover. You're not supposed to jump. And that's a cardinal rule in skydiving is that you don't jump unless you can see the ground. I can see the lawsuits happening already. You can see them <laughs> in this day and age. You can definitely see them coming. Absolutely. So as these errors occurred one by one, they're happening independently. And nobody knows that these errors are occurring kind of in real time. So as these errors stack up, it's going to lead to this tragedy. And that, that's really going to be a, a, a problem of this whole story. So not only is the plane overloaded, now you have cloud cover. And additionally, the pilot was not rated for the plane. So even though he had a lot of hours, he owned the plane, he flew planes in the war. One of the problems is he's not rated to fly this B-25. Additionally, there are two distinctions in when you're flying. One is you're flying with visual line of sight. The other one is you're flying with instrument. He's not instrument rated. So you can fly instrument rated, and that's exactly what you would need in this case when you can't see around you. So that's when you go to instruments. But if you're just flying visual line of sight, you can see out the air, you can see out the airplane and you can see what's happening. He's only rated for visual. He's not rated for instrument. So nobody knows these distinctions and nobody understands that these things are kind of happening all at once. As the uh, B-25 takes off and get, gets to altitude, he immediately gets confused in the clouds. The pilot does. He doesn't know where he's at, and he's trying to communicate with the FAA. And again, the FAA doesn't understand these restrictions that he has in terms of, I can only talk, I can't talk and navigate at the same time. The FAA does not know about this. So this is adding to the problem. Additionally, as he gets higher and higher up in the air, he's, he's getting this hypoxia. He's starting to lose his senses because he doesn't have oxygen. So that's adding to the confusion of this guy. So he takes off with all these jumpers. And now here's where the, the problem really starts to occur. At the same time that he takes off, a Cessna also takes off at the same time at the last minute. So the Cessna takes off from Ortner Airport. Now, what the Cessna is going to do is going to take pictures of these guys jumping. These are 20,000 feet, so the Cessna has some ground to make up. Now, the Cessna is going to do the right thing. The Cessna goes above the clouds, and when he breaks out of the clouds, he's looking for the B-25, thinking, well, I've been circling the airport here. Where is the B-25? And he can't find it. The B-25 now has tracked north, and he's going north over Lake Erie, which is around five miles away. So as this B-25 is continuously getting lost in the clouds, the B-25 the B-25 is still in this cloud cover. He doesn't know where he's at. The Cessna knows where he's at, but they don't understand where they're at with each other. Another problem that occurred, and this, this also contributes hugely to the story, is that there was a shift change at the FAA. One air traffic controller is leaving his shift, ending his shift. The other one is starting. So as he transfers over, they don't know it, but they switched planes. So the new FAA air traffic controller is now tracking the Cessna, thinking it's the B-25. Contributing that fact, now here's the B-25 pilot with the inability to, we'll call it, effectively communicate. So it's all contributing to this, this accident that's about to occur. It's the perfect storm. It's the perfect storm, and it's about to get really stormy. So the FAA says, you got the clear, you're good to go, go ahead and have these guys jump. The B-25 pilot says, okay, I'm going to have them jump in a minute. So at about a minute, the bomb bay doors open, and within about 20 seconds, the entire plane was cleared out. Everybody jumps out of the plane. Not only did the bomb bay doors open, but the back of the airplane also opened up, as well as a side door. 
So everybody's just plummeting out. Now, another problem is you're still in cloud cover. So these jumpers don't understand a thing. All they know is, hey, we're jumping. So they're relying on the, the pilot as well as the FAA to provide a safe landing spot. So as they jump out, they jump out at 20,000 feet, sure enough. As they plunge through the clouds, they free fall until about 3,000 feet. At 3,000 feet, they've broken through the clouds. To their horror, they discover we're over water. Not only we're over water, but we can't even see land. So as they're plumbing into the ground, they realize, they understand what's happening, and only one of the people had any kind of flotation device whatsoever. So as they're plunging to the, to the water, they have to shed all of their gear. They were wearing heavy clothes because at 20,000 feet, it's negative 20. So at negative 20, your frostbite is a very real possibility. So as they're plunging through the crowds, all of a sudden they're stripping off all their clothes, their winter gear, the gloves, the hats, everything is coming out because they can understand what's about to happen. Now, the, the skydivers didn't understand, and they thought, hey, a boat's going to be along any second to pick us up. So as they plunge into the water, there's nobody around. And all of a sudden, the, the, the hard reality sinks in that they're in big trouble. They have to do everything they can to stay alive. There were boats in the area, and one of the boats zipped over and picked up two of the people and also two bodies. Wow. So these people had already started to drown by that this quickly. part that, that quickly. Wow. It was absolutely horrible. Weren't, weren't two of the people, you said they dropped two more people at 30,000 feet. They were going to, but they didn't. Oh, they did not drop They did people. not. And so I think there's some conjecture that the pilots understood that something really bad happened. Okay. And so they did radio the, the FAA, and this kind of adds to all confusion. They asked the FAA, they said, hey, can we go to 30,000 feet? The FAA said, no, you're high enough. The phrase they use, they're high enough, go ahead and release the other, the other two. And so that's what they did. And they, 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 they made it. They're fine. Okay. But those other people, they're the ones that were really the victims of this, this whole accident. Uh, additionally, the pilot didn't have a set of headphones. He had to borrow a set of headphones from the people that were jumping. And that wouldn't inspire confidence in me if all of a sudden the pilot turns around and goes, hey, does anybody have a set of headphones I can borrow? That's a problem. I'm at the, you know what, I'll stay in the plane. We're, we'll, we'll all land at the same time. But they didn't, of course, and that uh, certainly contributed um, to the problem. So the Cessna is uh, still still flying. He's still wondering where the where the B twenty five is, and he eventually uh, figures out. Well, I better land. So the Cessna is now landing, and the B twenty five has released all of their people. The pilot of the B twenty five made a remark as he was flying. They were banking over the lake and, and heading back to Ortner Airport. He made a remark. He could see a spot in the clouds that were that was that had opened up, and he saw water. Ooh, I better, I hope they didn't land in the water. I hope, and so that was it. That was the only recognition or even acknowledgement that uh, this accident occurred. And one of the big problems is nobody knew. Nobody could figure this accident out. So the B-25 releases all the, the, the jumpers thinking, oh, I did my part. The Cessna's thinking, well, I can't find the B-25, but when I, get, when I land, everything will be all right. The FAA is thinking, well, I've done my job. I tracked them accurately. They jumped. And the people on the ground, of course, had no idea. And they're the probably, those are the people that probably figured it out first, thinking, well, this plane's been up here a long time. There's no passengers, excuse me, there's no jumpers here. Where's everybody at? So as they, as they descended, the plane comes down, the tragedy begins to unfold. People understand the gravity of what happened. And it had to be an interesting conversation to, to be there on the ground thinking, where's everybody? Where's everybody at? I, I would imagine that they probably couldn't conceive that all these people drowned. 
Now, when the pilot gets back and everything, when everything starts unraveling, okay, there was a 53-hour intensive search for the missing parachute who inadvertently dropped over Lake Erie. And it brought over 400 people to Huron to aid in the search and to help the grief-stricken relatives. And as dusk fell over Lake Erie, the lake begins to kick up. They said the waves were at three to five feet, which also added to the difficulty of rescuing these people. And immediately, the media descends upon Huron while these, while these, uh, they, they search for these, these lost people. And over 75 to 80 newspapers, TV, radio people, they all descended on Huron, Ohio to look for these, for these missing skydivers. Within 20 seconds, if this plane empties out, these people are going to kind of be in the same spot, right? And so that's what they said. They said as these people jumped out, they could see the other people, but there was enough distance between them. They couldn't talk. They weren't that close. But as they jumped, they could see, they said it was a straight line as if it was planned. It was do-do-do-do-do-do. So all these people that had jumped out, the first, when the, when, the, when the boat came to rescue the first guy, he was two miles away from the other guy he rescued. And there were other people in the way, and they said that he could see parachutes, and he could see bodies floating in the water. So it's just a, just a horrible tragedy all the way around. Do they know how far off course they really were? Um, did, did it end up being six miles off the shore? Do they know how far out they were in Lake Erie? The FAA investigation would find that they were three miles out. And okay. Three miles out is pretty far over the lake. You're not seeing land at three miles. Wow. You know, you're, you're, you're pretty far out there. So the two remaining jumpers, uh, they made it back, and they did make it over Ortner Field. And so he releases 18 people, and he's trying to get up to 30,000 feet. And that's when he became confused, and that's when this, this lack of oxygen contributed to it. He had no idea where he was. He's relying on the FAA to guide him back. The FAA does guide him back, and so those last two people were able to jump over correctly over Ortner Airport. But it's kind of surprising that the pilot didn't have a concept. If you're, if you're seven miles away, it's going to take you time to get from the lake back to Ortner Airport. And so why didn't the pilot say, wait a minute, now the FAA tells me I'm back over Ortner Airport. How was I over Ortner Airport seven miles away? Now I'm back again, unless you're flying in these big circles. Did he get most of the blame for this, the pilot? Um, yes, and we're going to talk about okay. that. And so okay. when the FAA does their investigation, what they're going to find is, in typical government fashion, they blamed everybody. I heard that they actually even blamed the skydivers themselves. They did blame the skydivers themselves. Uh, initially, they blamed them, but they, they came back and did a follow-up, and they, they lessened the impact. And one of the rules is they said the skydivers are to blame because the skydivers jumped without being able to see the ground. So in essence, they're saying, hey, you broke your own rules. The pilot was certainly at fault for a lot of things, including, Sounds, yes. yeah, <laughs> he was the guy at the controls, right? So not only that, the FAA was at fault. And obviously, kind of the the eh, the unprofessional way the whole thing was handled. So the, the, the airport itself bore some responsibility uh, in this as well. There was a subsequent lawsuit that was filed. And again, they found these people to blame. Um, they did change the rules of skydiving altogether, including the reemphasis on seeing uh, the ground. They had a change of how many people that could be in the airport, as well as the kind of a standardization of the communication between the FAA and the pilots. 
And this had a, a ripple effect across the whole country, I would imagine. It changed the rules everywhere. Absolutely. Yes, it did. And skydiving is becoming more popular since then. But yeah, this was the, this was the one that changed it all. Wow, that's incredible. It was a crazy story. So they, they, it took them over two weeks to find all the bodies. There was one person that they did not find. Of those people that passed away, all were men except for one, a mother of four, tragically. Wow. So there was one woman who did pass away. But not a lot of people know about this tragedy that occurred in uh, Huron, Ohio. And then they do a, like a memorial jump, or they did a couple memorial jumps for them later? They did. And they, in essence, they kind of recreated the jump. And they threw a wreath out, and I think they landed in the water oh, as a kind okay. of a tribute to yeah. the people that uh, passed away. But they did do a, a memorial jump. That's a good question. Wow. But that's the, that's the story. That's the tragedy of Ortner Airport that changed all the skydiving rules. Now you know why I don't go skydiving. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. You can check me out. I'm Dan at North Coast History and Haunts on YouTube. And I'm Mike, and you can find me on Facebook at my Facebook page, Too Late for Autographs. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. See you next time. Thanks for listening. That was another episode of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. Stay tuned for more. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? 
These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.